Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a sales or revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore the various things it takes to build a high-performance sales organization. We talk strategy, tactics, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll hear from me and the lessons that I learned on my own journey from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts, including some of the members of our own Sales Leadership Foundations Forum and Mastermind community. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and forum.rayjgreen.com for more information about the community. Thanks for listening. Now let's dive into why you're here today. Hey, everyone. Really excited about today's show. Um, today we have Tom Short. Tom Short is the chief growth officer at Lappin 180. He leads their sales efforts, you know, developing their business development strategies and, and uh, execution. He has a real passion for, for psychology and, and neuroscience and mindset and how that drives his success, but also the success of, of his teams and, and companies as a whole, you know, using some of those, those tactics. Prior to joining Lappin 180, Tom actually spent 10 years officiating NCAA men's Division I basketball. He traveled internationally for, for FIBA tournaments and has some, some incredible experience, including working with, with Olympic teams. So we're going to dive into some sales, some leadership, some, some mindset. Tom and I share some, uh, some hobbies. You know, you'll, you'll hear he's a really active reader, real fitness enthusiast. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And um, like I said, uh, really looking forward to, to this show. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you for having me, Ray. Yeah, glad to have you. I'm really, I'm really excited about this show. Um, I know you, you know this, but for the listeners, I first heard you on, on Katie's podcast, and I, just, I thought it was a phenomenal podcast. It was you know, one of my favorite episodes of his. And I said, man, I've got to get him. I've got to get him on this show, even selfishly, just to just to pick your brain and, and listen to you talk. Yeah, I appreciate it. Happy to be here. That was a that was a fun episode, and I have no doubt we'll have a have a great combo today. Your specialty, your your focus is is mindset. Um, I mean, you have a you have a you have a lot of lot of talents, but you even on your LinkedIn, um, you know, it's it's mindset is everything, and and that's kind of the the place that I, I want to start on on mindset and. Maybe just set like a little foundation for the for the listeners when when you talk about mindset or what is that what is what's what's included in that from from your perspective? Yeah, for me, Ray, mindset is everything because how we think determines everything. A lot of times, people will look at the consequences or the results of something, and then they just tie it back to, well, my behaviors were this or my actions were this. But you got to go even a step behind that, and it everything starts with your thoughts. And one of the greatest things I've heard about it is, is, is really starts with the voice too. Trevor Moad, who's, um, he had a book that came out last year, It Takes What It Takes. And you know, he, he leads a lot of the sessions off and he says, raise your hand if you talk to yourself. And usually like 30% of the room raises the hand. And he's like, well, the other 70% of you just said to yourself, I don't talk to myself. And so mindset to me is really understanding that our thoughts and they can be changed will determine everything good and bad. What we focus on, those are the things that will materialize in our lives. Love that. So when you when we're talking about mindset, and I, I think you already you already said this. So you can you can change your thoughts. You can change the way that you think. And I this may push us into the like the growth mindset and fixed mindset. But how much of a 
how much can you change what you think or what is that? Or, you know, how does that play into the, to the growth mindset to, to you? So to me, the short answer is everything to your question of how much can you change? Because when we're born, we don't have any beliefs, right? Like we, we don't have any beliefs. We're just born and we've got either parents or authority figures in our lives. And so as we get older, because they're, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, we have our kids, like we're telling them and kind of molding them of we're putting our beliefs on them. And so we started to kind of pick up there with like our parents and our authority figures in our lives. Maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a teacher, whoever that may be. And so that kind of starts our foundational belief. And then our environment, we just kind of adapt to what our environment is. But at any given time, you can change how you think. We're not born with any belief. And because we're not born with any belief, we can change any belief that we have because we're in, we are encountering those as we get older and encounter new experiences. Does that mean, does it get harder the older you get? Like the, because of the biases, like the over time, you kind of reinforce this thing and you do talk to yourself and you have these beliefs. So does that mean as a kid, you're, it's a blank slate, but I'm, I'm 40 now. Is it, is it just way harder for me with, with the biases that I have in place? So most of the science I've seen says that by age 35, like 95% of our brain is, is, is formed, is wired, but it just means it's going to take a little extra work to change that. Cause our brain is very, and there's a term, you know, neuroplasticity, like our brains can be changed. There, there's a lot of books and research out there and it's still in its infancy, um, not to go down the, the science hole, but yeah, our brains can certainly change. It's certainly harder as we get older because we kept, we become stuck in our ways or, Hey, that's the way I've always done it. Right. So it does take some, some conscious thinking of, okay, I want to get better. It starts first with the decision. And then there are ways that we can change it by changing our thoughts. So the thing about mindset and, and changing things, and we find this in work, right? Like you go into to organizations and one of the, one of the hard parts and knowing as an organization, what needs to change is the fact that you're, you're kind of in the weeds. So you're, you know, seeing the forest through the trees. And, and so we have some biases about ourselves. So how do we, how do you get a baseline or a starting point on the areas of, of most impact on, on what to change in your own, in your own mind or your own mindset? You know, I, I think back to ways that I've done it. And sometimes it might be from, from pain, right? Cause pain sometimes is the reason that we change something. So maybe we're experiencing some sort of pain. doesn't have to be a traumatic experience. Maybe it is, you know, sometimes you've heard, probably heard the saying, I just got tired of being tired. Like I just wanted something different. Sometimes it just, you might not be ready as an individual because you had mentioned like being objective with ourselves. I think it's really hard as humans to be objective with ourselves. Look, I can give you the best advice in the world, Ray, and then turn around and I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or like, I'm going to, I'm going to make excuses for this. So it's just understanding first, like making that decision. It just starts with a decision. I think sometimes, especially with mindset, People try to overcomplicate it. And it's not the best definition I heard is like, it's not a defensive, like, hey, I'm going to, you know, have this mindset to use as like a defensive mechanism as a barrier. No, use your mindset as a weapon. Like, it can be an offensive weapon that you can use in anything, whether it's business, whether I saw it firsthand, you know, in, in sports and officiating, but it, it can totally be that differentiator from you. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Michael Gervais. He has said, you know, if you take three things and, and he's kind of related with athletes, there's the body, the craft and the mind, right? So if you, you know, I, I worked with the, uh, officiated the men's Olympic team in 2012, 2016, 
And so you take those athletes, the 2012 team was phenomenal. You look at their bodies and Ray, they're all built like you and I, they're like Greek gods, right? (laughs) And then you take their craft and that's where you start to see a little separation, right? Like Kobe was the one that just took it to the nth degree every time. So you start to see some separation in craft, but then the, the third piece, and this was really kind of like the light bulb for me is like your mindset is, is the one thing that is the most untapped, but can also provide the biggest separation, not only from your competition, but your old self. And so to me, it's, it's understanding that and just having that awareness and then tapping into that. It's like anything else, right? You start with, okay, I remember my mindset journey and it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta tap into this. And you just start reading and you find out, you know, who's been there, who's done it. And then you just start getting better and and you find things to tweak it. And and we can certainly go into some of those, but you know, things like meditation to help with focus and, and visualization and, and the self-awareness and clarity around, you know, being present in the moment can certainly help in all aspects of not only sports, but obviously business as well. Right. So when you, when you're working with Olympic level, I mean, this is the, the best of the absolute best, um, in the world. Can, how big is the Delta? Like, so say there's, there's, you know, like say Kobe's out on one, one end as like just the, you know, all-star in terms of mindset and, and athleticism. And then they're all Olympic level athletes. Is there still a pretty big gap on the people that are, that are practicing, actively practicing mindset routines or, or evolving or, or is everybody on the team at that point, basically in the game? No. So I, so two things, one, at that level, that was my first experience that even at that top level, there's another level, right? Like there's, even when you get to the Olympic team, there's still another level that I had no idea. I just figured, okay, these 12 guys are on the Olympic team. Like those are the best of the best. Like, I think that's what makes elite performers elite is because they will never consider themselves elite because that they, or an expert, because they know that there's never really a true expert because they're always back to that growth mindset. They're always looking for that next level. And it's a competition internally, not competing with the guys around you. Sure. They use that because of, you know, maybe ego or, or whatever, but it's that internal competition of getting better from the day before. Um, and then the second point there is it's always harder to stay there than it is to get there. And I can attest to that from, from officiating as well as there's a lot of guys that get into division one. It, it, it's a lot harder to stay there for, for years and years. And, and, and think about sales too. Like everybody, you know, could have a good year, but are you being consistent? Are you there constantly having those, whatever good is in your definition or success, but are you consistently doing it? That's the separation. So the Delta is really big, especially at the Olympic level. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about when you say the it's harder to, to stay there than it is to get there. It reminds me of a, a quote we used to use on with one of the sales teams is, you know, it was an Andy Grove quote, success leads to complacency, complacency leads to failure, only the paranoid survive. And when you, and when you hear it, you think, well, gosh, I don't know if I want to be in that state of mind all the time, like an absolute paranoia, but it does kind of speak to what you're saying, like the, the, the effort to get there, but then that success can kind of plateau, right? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you balance finding some level of being content with an obsession to always get better? That's a great question. To me, it's, it's having this gratitude for what you've accomplished and, and gratitude for what can come, but also back to the, to the point of you know, the success that you've reached, knowing that 
if you are true, and James Clear talks about this in Atomic Habits, if you're truly only competing against yourself yesterday, there's never going to be a bar. And I'm not, let me be very clear, I'm not advocating like grinding it all out and running yourself into the ground because that's another thing I, I realized with elite performers is rest and recovery is a big part of it. Sleep is a big part of it. It's not about you know staying up 20 hours a day and Red Bull and everything. Like that's a thing of the past. Now, you know, now there's things like and everything else that, that helps in the rest and recovery, but it's being happy and grateful for what you've achieved, but knowing that complacency is not there because if you're always trying to get better than you were yesterday, then there's never going to be a ceiling to where you can go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had a I've, I've had some discussions with people recently about complacency versus content in complacencies that ought to be doing something better. And then content is finding a, a place to to be satisfied with what you have. I guess it speaks a little bit to the to the gratitude practice that you mentioned. Is gratitude a part of do you consider that is that is that a, a part of mindset? Very much so. A- absolutely. You know, science has proven that we can't physically think, you know, there's no such thing as multitasking, right? Like this isn't like a Tom Short belief. You just our minds can't think about two things at once. I don't, I don't know if you if you play golf or or you're a golfer, but you know, if you walk up to the tee and you know, you've got water on the right and woods on the left and I'm like, don't hit it in the water, don't hit it in the water. That's all I'm thinking about. And the same goes if if I'm starting my day from a place of gratitude, right? Like I can't help but be in that, you know, sense of I'm grateful for everything. And you can find you can find gratitude in everything. Like we've got a roof over our head, we've got opportunity. Like, and so incorporating that routine into my that practice into my morning routine, I think, is really what took it to the next level. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned it's the the gratitude. It really is a choice, and I'm. Uh, I think it was actually in in a podcast I heard you on. You mentioned the the Tony Robbins, like the the Hour of Power walk. I think, and you know, cultiv like intentionally cultivating some gratitude, and it's it's a habit, it's a practice to a degree. And I I know that I'm I'm literally looking at an ocean, and I'm I mean, there are, there are so many things that I I can be grateful for, but sometimes I find myself in a slump, and I'm just I'm pissy, and I'm and I have to remind myself, wait a second, like this is a choice, you know, to be grateful. You can find it in anything and you can also be anywhere and forget about it too, to a degree, I imagine, right? Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's that conscious decision of, of looking at a situation and do you see it as, as an obstacle or do you see this as a lesson of like, okay, I'm going to use this to be grateful that I have the opportunity to learn and get better. And it goes back to the growth mindset. Like You can see something as a problem and say, okay, that's it. Uh, I'm done. Or you can say, you know what? There might be a better way to do this. I don't know if there is, but I'm going to express gratitude, make that a daily habit. And it, it takes time to build up the habit. I know I've mentioned before, it's anywhere from, I think, 56, 57 days all the way up to like 250. So it's not going to happen overnight, but it does take little reminders. You know, For me, it's setting my journal out on the desk at night before the morning. So I don't have to consciously think about, oh, I need to go get my journal. Like I know it's right there. And everyone has five minutes to, to write down some things that you're grateful for. And so just having, building up those cues, right? So that when you walk into your office for your morning routine or whatever it is, you just get in that mindset of, okay, today I'm going to be grateful for something. So you said something earlier and I, I, I really want to hit on this because you, you talked about the multitasking and I'm a hundred percent behind you. And I know the, the science validates that, but I will tell you, like, I'll, I'll be honest. I still have a bad habit of, well, I could probably multitask this one thing. 
and it leads to a like I'll be I'll be doing something or I'll be on a call and here let me check my my LinkedIn messenger real quick. Well that turns into seeing the notification and that turns into like the the vortex that that ensues. I do it often enough that it, it can actually get frustrating. And and so I've I've said in in 2021 I want to improve focus. Like I want to I want to get better at at being focused because I think it's to some degrees it's a bad habit of of trying to multitask. If you were me and and you wanted to improve that part of your mindset. So I want to get better at focus over time. Are there some resources or some routines or some practices that someone can can go through to to try to improve in that space? Yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go a couple different ways with that. One thing that I started doing, and it was probably, not probably, it was influenced by the, the documentary on Netflix, uh, Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. So I have now, outside of my alarm system at my house, I have all notifications turned off on my phone. Text messages, email. I, I know that's probably like people are like, you're in sales. How do you have email notification? Just have it turned off. I'm not, I'm not a fireman. I'm not putting out fires or saving anyone's life. Like nothing is that urgent that needs to be solved right away. And a big part of it, and I think it sounds so simple, Ray. So people are like, there's no way that that can help. I can say unequivocally, spending the first two hours without looking at a screen in the morning has helped my focus more than anything else. And I'll repeat that. Spending the first two hours without looking at a screen has helped my focus because what is that doing? That's setting me up that any interaction I have throughout the day, I will respond, not react, right? Because what happens? We, we pick up our phone in the morning. To your point, we look at net, LinkedIn. We look at an email. Maybe it's from a client or, or, or a colleague and you know something happened. That really going to get solved at 6 or 7.15, like it, it can wait. And so those two things. And then I would say the third thing that has really helped is installing a meditation practice. I now do it two times a day, but just letting that become part of my routine. And that just really helps in, in getting grounded in, in the clarity and, and focus. And, and look, we're human beings, right? There's going to be times when I lose focus. I find myself because I've started to make small incremental changes I'm able to have the self-awareness to understand when I'm starting to go down a rabbit hole. So maybe instead of a 30 or 40 minute rabbit hole, maybe it's a three or four minute rabbit hole. Yeah, you're right. It's because when you're aware of it, you can catch yourself and you, you thump yourself on the hand and go, okay, back to, which is, I guess, in many respects, or at least that's, that's how meditation works for me too. Like most of that, I use like calm and I've used headspace in the past. They remind you if your, your brain's going to start, it's going to start floating away it's natural. Just catch yourself, come back and don't beat yourself up. Kind of, kind of move on. Do you use an app or, or how do you, what's your meditation of, of choice? Yeah. So I used Calm and Headspace a couple of years ago when I was traveling. And then I got introduced to a technique called Ziva meditation, Z-I-V-A. So it's a 15 day, it's online. It's a 15 day course. And she gradually leads you up to the full you know, 20, 25 minute meditation. And the whole thought is that she's leading you on this journey so that you don't need anything. That's my morning meditation. And then in the afternoon, I'll do 10 minutes of box breathing or just 15 minutes, maybe of a a condensed Ziva meditation. Or I still do use, I I love the calm sleep stories at night. Uh, I don't know if you've you've checked any of those out. I, I love those at night, but then also I'll do like the daily, daily calm maybe in the afternoon, if I just want like a guided one, I really like the, I don't know if you've ever done the 
walking meditation on call map. That's really cool. It's cool that you mentioned that I, cause I just started it not two weeks ago. One thing I have found that helps is it's not necessarily putting down my phone for the two hours. And I, I do want to ask you about that though, but it's, it's not picking up my phone before I determine what I want to do that day or what I need to get done that day. And so, cause if I have found, if I pick up my phone, if I look at Asana or if I look at my inbox or if I look at, if there are, there are 14 million things that other people need me to do today. And what happens is I, I start checking those boxes off. I feel very active, but you get to the end of the day and you're like, well, I didn't do, I didn't do shit. And when I, so I've, I've started going for an hour walk in the morning and it, I used to bike, but going for an hour walk, doing the first 10 minutes with calm and thinking on the rest of the walk, okay, what do I actually need to do today? What needs to get done? And I always come back with two or three or four really important things and everything else is just, just let it burn. You know, like it's, if I don't get to some of the activity driving, sorry, like I'm, I'm, but I, these were the important things that I determined with kind of clear headspace. And, and I, and that's been, that's been really important for, for me at least. So what is the, so you don't pick up your phone for a couple of hours. What are you, what are you doing during that? Is it, is, is there, is there something else that you replace it with in terms of practice or routine? Just playing Xbox. Yeah. I figured. (laughs) (laughs) So. It's gotten to the point now where I don't even like need an alarm clock. I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just like my body knows like regardless of, and I, I go to bed fairly early, probably a little earlier than my, my wife would like. So first 20, 25 minutes is meditation. Then it's, I like to spend an hour in just personal reading. So whatever, you know, grab a cup of coffee and just get in a book, a, a book that I am going to enjoy, whatever that book is that week. Then it's uh, exercise for 30, 45 minutes. And then, you know, by that time you're, I've usually in the journaling, you know, it's about five minutes in there too. And that usually gets you to about two hours. Now there's some mornings I'll stretch out the reading or maybe the exercise will go a little bit longer, but that's a pretty consistent. And I say that with a cat, like this is two or three years in the making. This wasn't, Hey, I'm going to do a morning routine tomorrow and let's do it for two hours. It, you won't make it. Cause you'll get, you'll get frustrated because you can't get through you know, 10 minutes. Right. You mentioned the, the box breathing too. In the book, do you have a, on your book routine, is that, is that usually a learning book? Is it just enjoyable stuff or is it kind of, is it deliberate? Is it stoicism? What, what do you go to? So great question. Cause before it really wasn't intentional. And this year I've made a point, <laughs> um, my goal is a book a week and I've, I'm maintaining that, but it's I'm two things with that. The first three weeks of the month, the book is going to be on the topic of either psychology, neuroscience, something in that realm, how the brain works and, and all that kind of stuff. And then the last week, I'm rotating between a fiction and a biography, either autobiography or biography on a leader, you know, someone like that. Uh, but I've actually mapped out all 52 weeks uh, of books for this upcoming year. Nice. I actually. Book a week has been my my routine, and I've for some number of months I've actually I've cut back a little bit, and it's actually it was a a post. There were a couple posts uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, well, one was from Justin Welsh, one was from Marcus Chan, all within like a week that that highlighted the the difference between ingesting information and digesting it. And I think I was I was jamming so much into my my mind at a time that I wasn't necessarily giving myself 
the time to really digest it and and let it sit. Do you run the risk of of that when you if you try to get too aggressive with either with with practicing mindset or just you know books, reading, learning, any of that? So I was in that camp of before I would say probably six months ago of like I'm just going to read as many books as I can because it's like a badge of honor. And then I was like, am I really any better if I'm just reading than someone that doesn't read? Like if I'm not applying it. So I've now I've got a conscious journal of just the books I read and I'm taking roughly a page of notes, but what's one thing I can apply in my life from, from each book, right? Like what's one thing I can, I can move forward. And so that's a task. I'm not picking up another book and until I do that one page kind of summary or just what spoke to me, what resonated, but also what's the one applicable thing so that I can go out and do something with it to your point of just, are you ingesting it or are you digesting it? Uh, so that's a big thing that I, I challenge myself. Like, so what you're reading book, a book a week, that doesn't mean anything. Like, what are you doing with that information? How is it going to help you when you, you know, interact with somebody else or you're in a conversation or you're in a situation? Like, are you putting that to work or are you just reading books to put up on the shelf? Hey, but I got a real lot of really cool badges from Audible. <laughs> earned. Yeah, earned harder. So you you mentioned the it's taken two or three years to build up this this routine. And that's and that's where you're you're practicing your craft of mindset, right? Like so you're 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 kind of like compounding results at this point. And recently I was introduced to something called called Gates's law, like Bill Gates's law, where you people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in one year and dramatically underestimate what they can accomplish in five or 10 years. And so it, it kind of explains why it's easy to get started on with these really aggressive goals. Where did you start or where do you recommend somebody start if they want to, whether it's a, a morning routine, an evening routine, or just improving mindset in general, where would they start? So maybe I'll start with the routine part first. Whatever you think should you should start with, decrease that by probably 50 to 75% and start there. If you've never had a morning routine, my suggestion is don't pick up your phone, go do like a lap. I don't know how big people's like neighborhoods are, but go do a lap or just go walk for 10 minutes without your phone. Just do that. Like do that for a week. And, and look, here's the thing too. Like if, if you miss, uh, we, we both have young kids, you know, sometimes mornings are, are hectic. It's okay. Just think about Seinfeld, Seinfeld's rules of success. Like pr- print out a wall calendar. If you complete your task, you write a red X and the goal is not to have more than two days without a red X, right? So just start super small. Just do like a week of 10 minutes of walking. And then you've done that or maybe do that for two weeks. Then it's like, okay, I'm going to read for, I'm going to read five pages or whatever it is. Start with something like the call map, which is, they, I mean, they have curated meditations for beginner and it's like a 10 minute and they're walking you through that. And they're saying, Hey, no matter how long you do this, you're going to have random thoughts that pop in your head. That's not the point is not to have a clear mind. It's just to be able to tap into that when you're in the meditation, knowing that how that whole process works. And so start so small that you almost think it's like laughable, but that's going to compound and build. I had not heard the, the Gates law, but now I'll probably be in a rabbit hole the rest of the afternoon. Like <laughs> <laughs> looking up, up Gates laws. And then I think your second question was like, how to build up a, a mindfulness routine. Meditation is certainly a, a part of it. You know, the self-awareness, be aware of how you talk to yourself, be aware of the thoughts you have. Meditation is certainly going to help with that. You know, for me, being able to 
respond to situations and not react is a, is a huge part of that. I feel like I sort of have an unfair advantage from officiating because I was kind of doing all this stuff so that when we threw the ball up for two hours, I needed to have a clear mind as clear as possible so that, you know, you've got 10 or 15,000 idiots screaming at you. You've got two coaches over there that, that are screaming at you and you've got your own team to work in this dynamic environment. So I knew I kind of had to figure it out or else I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to last very long because you've got to have that, that mental clarity and that strong mindset to be able to succeed and not just get there, but stay there. I love that. Going back to the routine piece. And I I've heard you say in the past, like, don't, don't let routines become a rut. And sometimes maybe, maybe also hitting on the, the objectivity piece, it can be hard to differentiate between the two, you know, when your when your routine starts to become a, a rut. And I, you know, I'm a big believer in, I have a morning routine and, but then I, when I've heard you say that, I've said, well, is that a rut or is that a routine? How do you differentiate or how do you recommend people assess that for themselves? If you start, maybe I think a good signal or a great kind of catalyst is if you start having those conversations with yourself, maybe you don't feel like, maybe you don't feel like you're growing. I don't know if there's a set answer and not that I'm trying to skate the, I don't know if you can say like, Hey, when you get to this point, it becomes a rut. I think it goes back to the growth mindset, understanding like, like for me, it was okay. It was an hour of no phone. And then it was like, I was getting pretty good at that. I'm like, okay, why can't I do 90 minutes or why can't I move this to two? So it's, it's understanding where are there opportunities throughout your day where you can, you can change those things up. And I think the biggest thing for me, I revisiting a, a, a book, Kobe's mama mentality book, and he was talking about, you know, self-doubt it never goes away, right? Like regardless when you get whatever level you get to, and this kind of helped me with like routines too, is like self-doubt doesn't go away and, and getting in ruts doesn't go away. It's having the awareness to say, to have that internal dialogue and say, okay, maybe I do need to switch things up. Not a big change, but maybe how can I get better? And it all goes back to, you're only going to know how good Ray is. Like, I'm only going to know how good Tom is. Like you're the only one that can answer like, are you performing? Are you hitting on all cylinders? And, and if not, like, what are some small tweaks that we can do? Not big things. Back to your comment about Gates' laws. Like, you can do a lot in a year. Like, there's a lot of progress that can be made in a year, but we get caught up in these grand gestures. And it's like, no, just start so, so small that it's almost like laughable that you'll look back and you'll be like, gosh, I was, I was walking around the block for five minutes. That's how this whole thing started. Right. And have you, I mean, either in your, working with with athletes or sales teams or just in in life when you've when you've seen somebody kind of get into that rut or that slump or when you get into that slump what are some good habits or practices that you've seen people just kind of break out like they they acknowledge it i know i'm in a slump let me shake it off but that's it's always easier you know to say it than it is to actually do it what are some of the ways that you've seen people done it or, or do it effectively or or that you've done it first of all we can't, whether it's a sales team or officiating a, a, when you're dealing with a coach, we can't want something for someone more than they want it for themselves. Like I can't want you to get better and do something more if Ray doesn't want that for himself. So I think that's the first thing. Like if we're a coach or, or whoever, a leading a, a sales team or even the CEO, like you can motivate and you can inspire your team, but if they ultimately don't want it, like there's, there's no motivation that like, 
that's why the motivation industry is so popular because they give you just a little hit of dopamine and then that wears off and then you come back. You've got to want it for yourself. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is like coming up with those small cues that, that make the habit easier. You know, so for me with the journal, laying the journal out at night, at Rob, uh, Charles Duhigg's book, Power of Habit, talks about like if you're setting up a workout routine, like lay out all your clothes the night before so that really the only thing you have to do in the morning is just put the shoes on and, and you know, put the workout clothes on. So just start really small to create those habits so that they can compound on each other. Because a lot of people think, well, it can't be that easy. That's what it really is, is just creating those really small cues and really small things that we can do because then they start just compounding on each other from there. And you've said, I mean, in a, in a way that I think that speaks to, to practicing mindset, like just, I mean, just working with yourself and finding the, the, the best way to, to break out of a slump is, is a matter of practice. And you've said before, I love the it, deliberate practice. Can you hit on this, the, the example of, of driving every day? Like what is, what is deliberate practice? And can you, can you go into that just for a second? Yeah. So I, I originally came across this idea from Dr. Erickson, who was a psych, uh, cognitive psychologist down at Florida State. And he wrote the book, Peak. And it's the science of expertise. And he talks about early on in the book, a lot of people say that the way to get better is just practice. And his example is if we're driving a car every day, that's something that we're doing every day, but I'm not, I'm not trying to get better at left-hand turns, or I'm not trying to get better at you know, accelerating from the stop sign. His point is deliberate practice is taking something and one specific thing and saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail at this. I'm going to fix it. And then I'm going to figure out like how to improve it. And that's what it is. And in his book, he essentially came up with two things of, of how elite performers how they separate themselves. And the first one, which I thought was fascinating, he said that recovery is paramount in anything that they do. And I think that's the one thing in the business world that we kind of just brush aside, that that's like, I don't know if we're too good for it or if it's just, we've never done it, but that's something that we just kind of brush aside. And he said, the second thing is they take hour-long practice sessions and they're hyper-focused, but they never last more than an hour. Like they physically take a break, get away. Now they might do a couple of those a day, I mean, Kobe was notorious about, you know, having these two-hour practice sessions three or four times throughout the day. It's an hour focus and then implementing recovery. That's what deliberate practice is. It's not just, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this today, right? Like if, if you're in sales and you're just making calls, like that's not practice. You're not deliberately trying to get better at something. I always go back to the officiating world, like there was always something, no different in sales, but there's always something you can get better at. If I was trying to get better at three or four things, you know, back to the multitasking, I wasn't get better at anything. So what I would do for like a week of games, now no one else would know this unless you were an official, but I would hone in on one specific thing. Maybe it, I'll give you an example. When I was the lead of the official on the baseline, I'm not going to miss a travel on the post. Now the guy might get elbowed in the face and I might miss that, but by gosh, I'm not going to miss a travel. But that's the whole point of you're going to hone in on that one thing deliberately. And then once I get that, okay, now I've got that. Now that's an innate habit. Now let's, let's find something else specific that I'm deliberately going to work on and then just keep adding that in. Sticking with the sports for a second, take Kobe, since we're, we're talking about Kobe and the, the intentional deliberate practice and, you know, the, the Netflix 
I forgot the name of it, but with Michael Jordan too, like you can, you can see the fire, you can see the competitiveness, you can see the drive. And some of that is, is guided by coaching too. And I just, I'm wondering as you're talking about some of this, what's the impact of, of a mind, you know, a, a mindset coach or having somebody help you through a deliberate plan. So you don't kind of fall into this trial and error, trial and error. Is this the right thing? Am I doing it right? Am I measuring it right? Are there some good tools or, or resources or, or coaches? Like, how does that play into, into development? Yeah, Dr. Erickson actually talked about that in his book as well, that elite performers realize they can't do it on their own, right? Like you look at any professional musician or athlete, like they all have at least two or three coaches. And then you look at CEOs, and I think that's starting to become more prevalent uh, in today's day and age where whether it's a sales coach or it's a business coach or, or a life coach. But Dr. Erickson was talking about in the book that, you know, there's going to be a certain coach that can only take you so far. And then you're just going to outgrow kind of their expertise. And then you'll need another coach specific for this. But I think also Tom Landry's got a great quote that, and I'm going to butcher it, right? But it's, you know, coaches help you see what you can't see to help you become what you have known you always can become. And that's what I think coaches do because we're not objective with ourselves, right? Back to my earlier comment as humans. And so if a coach is invested in you, like they'll, they'll be able to be objective with you because they want you to become the best version of yourself, right? So they're going to they're gonna help you. They're not going to give you the answers. I think that's what a really good coach does is they're going to let you struggle. They're going to let you fail because that's going to teach you lessons. They're going to help in, maybe inspire a little bit, but they're going to say, hey, look, here's, here's the way. Now, how do we get there together, right? Like I'm only... I'm only going to guide you along this journey. You're going to have to do the hard work. Let's be very clear about that. Coaches are not there to just take the reins and say, hey, Ray, we'll lay it up. You just kind of show up. No, no, no. I would say even more so with a coach, like that's when it's time to like, okay, the reason you have a coach is because they're helping guide you, but you still have to do all the hard work. Mm -hmm. Or I heard recently that the head coach, his name's not coming to me, of the, of the, Tampa Bay Buccaneers made a comment about, well, you know, I'm basically just letting, letting Tom Brady coach the team. And I, I said, well, I mean, there's, there's, I'm surely there's some truth to that, you know, that I'm, I'm taking a back seat. I'm checking my ego at the same time. They're not paying you what they're paying you to watch Tom Brady do it. Right. But that's, that has to be stylistically. And that's the best coaching style. That's going to maximize the result of that particular team. And still guiding with with wisdom and some you know mentorship, surely that's there. But probably a good example of you know the importance of of checking your ego and and coaching. I imagine. Yeah, I think it was it was Bruce Arians that said that, right? It was this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think and that just goes to the fact like it's there's not a one size fits all. Like if we're on the same team, like there's there's going to be different expertise among us. So you're going to treat everyone equal, but you might not treat everyone fair. Right? Or is it the other way around? You treat everyone fair, but not equal. I think it's you treat everyone fair, but not equal. So like Tom's probably got a little longer rope just because of his experience and what he's done. And I think that comes to like when when you've got the results and like your rope might be a little bit longer. So it, it's really adapting and knowing that there's not a one size fits all approach with coaching and and you've got to be, I think that would that makes a good coach too of like, okay, I can I can take the reins off a little bit, but hopefully he still has. And I'm sure he does the respect within the locker room of like, okay, at the end of the day, it's kind of like the, the parent child relationship. Like I'm first and foremost, the parent before I'm your friend. 
Like I can be your friend, but I'm going to be the parent first. So yeah, it's, it's, that's interesting for sure. You know, on, on this, on the mindset, um, just generally speaking, you know, I think of things like gratitude and things like focus and concentration and deliberate practice and all the things that come with that. And it, it results in better performance. The, I mean, it's at, at least, I mean, I can speak to it from experience. I can speak to it from my teams. I'm sure you can quite a bit, but it, it still shocks me how, how few companies are, are invested in this or providing any resources or any guidance when it comes to, when it comes to their team, like they'll bring in, they'll bring in coaches per se, but like you're coaching specifically to the tactics and into the techniques, sometimes the strategy, but very rarely do you see organizations making substantial investments in improving the mindset of our, of our employees and our team. I guess I would say, do you agree with that? And if so, why is that? Why is it not more prevalent? That's a great question because I was gonna I was gonna ask. Let me first start off by saying I don't know I, I don't have the answer to that. It's mind boggling to me once you understand the impact and implications it has. But what, why why do you think that in in the business world it's I don't it's not frowned upon. It's still pretty. Look, if you and I went out today and we asked 10, 10 people in business like hey like you know I think the first question you had to me like what is mindset or what is when you hear the word mindset, what do you think? I'd probably say eight out of 10, maybe seven would be like something about yoga or like, <laughs> they would probably just like go there, like mindset or, you know, I've, I've heard about that. Or, you know, I think there's some apps out there. You know what I mean? Like, why do you think it is so, like the business world is definitely lagging the sports and the performers, like whether it's an artist or, you know, musical performer or anything like, like, why do you think it's so, like, why is the business world lagging? And I think it's a hell. I was hoping you'd you'd have the silver bullet. I you know I don't know. I think maybe some portion of that is it's not tangible. It's hard to quantify. It's not. I think there actually are some immediate results, but the the instant gratification nature of a lot of organizations oftentimes lends itself to making decisions and investments on things that are going to have a clear ROI by the end of the month or the end of the quarter or going to affect my annual bonus, and so. These things that most certainly do affect performance of teams, but the, it's hard to put that on a P&L. It's hard to make that a, a bonusable type of, type of deal. And I think what surprises me is when you evaluate the top performers in the world at anything, like at anything, like I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss, and I, I am blown away at how many people consistently, whether it's, whether it's meditation or just general mindset, or I mean, a lot of the, the themes that we're talking about today are incredibly common with the best of the best in virtually everything. And because of that, it still kind of surprises me, but I don't, I don't know the answer other than perhaps tough to quantify the, the results and, and maybe some, some short-sightedness and maybe a stigma. I mean, maybe when you say, you know, mindset, Maybe that that stigma of, oh no, not meditation, but meditation it has a huge impact on on somebody's performance and and how they do their job and in the state of mind that they're in. And I know we you know a lot of our audience is sales. I mean, think about like how much of sales is psychology. So I don't know. What do you think? I think there's there's a couple points that you mentioned that I, I, very valid, but I, I would I would probably come back at somebody. So so the one is the short sightedness, right? Is this going to give me something? tomorrow or next week. And then I always say, okay, but what are you losing out on, right? Like there's this, you're familiar with the term loss aversion. People would rather 
not lose $5, then make $5, right? Like that's just a human condition of loss aversion. Like we would, we'd rather hold on to our stuff and not lose something than gain something. So then, you know, I always say, okay, I hear you. Like maybe there's nothing that can come tomorrow, but how many deals are you losing out on? Or how many calls are not going the way that they should, because you're not in the right mindset. Like you're just picking up the phone or you're just walking in. It's a mate to your point. It's a mate. There was this documentary on Netflix, Lennox Hill. If you're into doctors, you might enjoy it. But the one thing that stood out to me was you've got these neurosurgeons that are going to perform these hour-long surgeries. And you know what they did with the whole staff in the operating room before they started? Mm. One of the doctors is spinning the chair and he goes, all right, everyone close, or he made everyone look at the chair. He said, we're going to look at this chair that's spinning. We're going to be right where our feet are. He's like, now we're going to close our eyes for 10 seconds. And we're going to think about this person and why we're here and what we're doing. And nothing else matters right now. And I'm like, just something as simple as that. Like, but how cool is that, that he's bringing that practice? They're doing way more important stuff than you and I are. Let's, let's be very, very clear about that. So you know, I, I think the first part is the short-sightedness. The second part, you know, I go back to, you know, your point, and it's a very common thing that I hear, like you can't measure it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, if you don't go and, and lift a weight, you can't measure that either. But how can you, by doing meditation and by being mindful of how you think before you do anything, how do you know you're not going to lose more? Why don't you measure that? Why don't you start a routine and measure that against what you were doing before? There's going to be your quantifiable results. But I think a lot of it too is the stigma. And people are, I think human nature, our brains, Ray, we're always looking for the path of least resistance, right? So is is there something I can bring in? Because I think I saw like the training industry is like a $20 billion industry. I'd almost venture to say like 19 of that is on like tactics or scripts or motivational, like, hey, what's something we can, you know, rah, rah for the team, right? But it's not really getting into like, do you understand how the other person is thinking? Do you even understand how you're thinking, right? Like, do you understand the, the, how you talk to yourself and why people do what they do? The last kind of comment I would make there, somebody asked me uh, a couple months ago, they were like, hey, what, what sales book would you recommend? And I was like, I appreciate that question. I, I just wanted to know, like, why, why are you asking that question? Well, I want to get better at sales. Got it. I would never read another sales book if I were you. They were like, <laughs> wait, what? And I was like, go read about psychology. Go read about neuroscience. Go read about why humans make decisions. Understand the difference between emotion and logic, right? Like, there's no logical reason that anyone should go buy a Ferrari this afternoon and spend $250,000. But guess what? They're going to go buy one because it's an emotional experience. And then they're going to logically rationalize why they did it. Ray, it gets great gas mileage. It's really safe. That's not why you're buying it, right? So how do you, do you understand, right? That separating factor of like how people think and why they make decisions. Like go read about that stuff. I don't, we don't need the next like tactic and script. If, if Ray says this, I'm going to say this, like, come on. Gosh, man, you hit on a lot there. I think. And one of the things that you said was, it, it reminded me of the getting to the root of the problem. Like, so one of the, I think as you were talking, I thought, you know, maybe another reason is most companies are trying to solve the fire they can see and feel and not necessarily looking for the arsonist or the root of the actual problem. And so, you know, you end up firefighting all day or you're, you're chasing the symptoms, you know, so sales are down. Okay, well, let's bring in a sales trainer. Let's get better tactics and techniques. And we might get a short-term bump, 
But what's going to keep that from sticking is going to be leadership, culture, mindset, like the things that are below below that that fire. And so I think that that's that was one part of it. And then the the other thing that you said about the about the sales books, it might actually go back to our earlier conversation about the the books and the challenge that I was having with with ingesting so much information was that so much of it was tactical, you know. So and so a new book every week when you're in a leadership role, that can be dangerous, you know, because you're new tactics this time, new tactics this time. And the books that you choose to read, like if you're looking at psychology, you're, you're talking about how to think, not necessarily what to do. So it allows you to, to be a little bit more consistent and, and I think deeper, certain degree. Yeah. And I, I want to read about leaders that have done it, right? Like success leaves clues. So e- even if, to your point, I, I love reading anything about someone who's an expert in their field. I don't care if you're the best violinist, the best pianist, uh, the best lacrosse player. My, my favorite example of this, uh, and, and I'll ask you, we didn't talk about this. Do you, if I said the name Anson Dorrance, do you know who, and I might be butchering his last name. Uh-uh. So he, I think he still is the women's soccer coach at North Carolina. Like go deep on this guy. He has won in his career, like 28 out of 36 national championships. And so I heard about him and I'm like, well, shit, if I can't learn something from that guy, like shame on me. And so I went out and bought a couple of his books. And like one book was like half the book was like soccer, soccer tactics. And I just skimmed over that part. But the other part, the two things that stood out was he talks about the standard. Uh, and he says, and if you have kids, this will to your audience. If, if you have kids, this will make sense. And he said, the biggest thing I see with coaches is that they lower the standard. And he said, here's an example. You know, I don't know if it was a son or daughter, but if you tell them the standard is when you're done with dinner, the dish goes in the dishwasher. Like if that's the standard. And then one night you let the kid just get up from the table and go upstairs and you don't make him or her come down and put that back. You've immediately, without saying anything, have lowered the standard and they don't look at you in the same role. And he says, I never lower the standard. My practices are always going to be more intense and harder than any game you get into. And then the second part was he talked about, I can never understand. And I appreciated this when I was officiating. He can never understand why coaches during games yell, how many times do I have to tell you to do that? And he's like, that's on you. Like, that's a practice thing. If you have to say that during a game and it's three out of four games, I would hear a coach, like prominent coaches that you would know. I'm not going to call any of them out here. Not that they're probably going to listen to this podcast, but would scream like, how many times have I told you? It's like, uh, that's on you. That's a coaching. That's a leadership thing. That's not on your player. So back to my original point, like you can always learn. Like I, if you're great or elite at what you do, I'm going to learn something from you. You know what I have, when you, when you talk about the standard, I, the common theme that I also see with coaches that are, that are consistent with that is the gratitude that their best players have for them later. Like, just like we do teachers, just like we do, I mean, the people that were kind of hard on us and pushed us a little bit more and helped us grow and helped us develop, you look back and you go, gosh, thanks. And I, you know, whether you're looking at it from a parenting standpoint or an employment standpoint, and I, it was funny when we, before we had our first, our first kiddo, I, like a, like a book nerd, I, I dove into like, give me 20 different parenting books. And there was one, one that stuck out to me. Um, it was, and I don't even know if it was a book, it was like, love and logic or something. But the, the gist of it was 
when you find yourself saying like, how many times do I have to say this? You have to remind yourself, your kids don't care about your words. They care about your actions. You can manage a child. And I, I think they're, the applicability to any leadership role for that matter, it speaks exactly to what you're saying. They, people are going to respond to the actions, not you know, no matter how many times you say it till you're blue in the face, as we know, as parents, like it's, that's, that's not going to, at least not consistently, not going to get you the results. So I have one more, one more thing that I, I definitely wanted you to hit on. And it's because it, it's had a huge effect on me and I use it at least once a day from the first time that I heard you have to and get to. And I have been able to turn, I mean, things that I was stressed out about and worried about or anxious about, like flip it. And can you speak to that? And just give a little bit of background for for listeners too. Yeah, that was a big shift. For me. You know, take anything. You know, if you're in sales, if it's you know making calls, whatever your, whatever it is, right? If you're a leader, if you if you have to have one on ones, right? It's going from I have to do X, and switching to I get to do Y, and it might not sound like a big shift, but I'll use making calls for an example, right? The reality is you don't have to make calls. Now there might be repercussions a week, two weeks, three, you know, a couple months down the line or whatever it is that you have to do. But when you switch to, I get to, I'll I'll use the calls. I get to start conversations because the reality is that's what, that's what you're doing in sales. You're starting a conversation. Everything is a conversation. You're starting conversations. And so when you switch, I have to have to, there's like this dread there's this uh like someone's forcing you to do it and i get to is a state of mind it's a conscious decision that i don't have to do anything and that's the reality outside of taxes and dying like you don't have to do anything but you get to do this and when you can make that shift from i have to do this to i get to it completely changes your perspective and to your point you can do it with anything I used to I used to look at like I have to do bedtime with my daughter and I was like are you freaking kidding me like I get to spend 45 uninterrupted minutes with her every single night outside of like the normal like playtime I'm like do you know how many people would just who either can't have kids or whatever would love that and I'm like shame on you so everything whether it's parenting whether it's there's no more have to I don't have to do anything because that's the reality. I don't have to do anything. But when you start to switch your mindset to I get to do this and insert whatever it is, you'll know you you'll show up a little bit different. You will. And if anybody's doubting it, just try it. Like just just anything. try it. It works with anything. Give it a shot. It's the self-talk and it really it, it changes your your perspective. Yeah. I feel like I I mean I could certainly talk to you for for hours about this. We may and and, and have you back yeah. on. <laughs> I'll come down to Baja. There you go. We'll do it in person. I tell people that's why I come here, like clients. I say, well, I came here so you could do offsites. Like that, that's, I'm doing it for you. You're welcome. In the meantime, where can, uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So uh, you'd mentioned on LinkedIn, uh, Tom Short, Mindset is Everything. And then our website, lapin180.com. Come over there and, and check us out there. Okay. Well, I, I'm really glad to, to have you on. I'm looking forward to our, to our next chat. Until then, I'll let you run. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It does help us out a lot. 
For more information about me or our business, Ray J. Green and Company, check out www.rayjgreen.com. And if you're in a role of leading sales improvement at the CEO level, as a business owner, or in a sales leadership position, you can apply to join our Sales Leadership Foundations community, plus get access to content and events that I don't share anywhere else. Again, rayjgreen.com. Thanks again for listening. Adios.